have them and open them up to Ephesians chapter 2. Yesterday, I was patiently or expectantly sitting in the waiting area of the barber shop, looking forward to getting my hair cut from my favorite barber, that I found out, unfortunately, got sick and will not be coming back to work. So I was very disappointed in that, but I figured, well, I need to get my hair cut anyway, so I may as well stay. And as I was there, my, my phone beeped at me. I was like, oh, that's weird. Somebody's texting me. So I open the phone, and I look at it, and I read the text, and, and it's Pastor Patrick. And he says, hey, brothers, I just wanted to let you know in that very joyful, bouncy, tiggerish Patrick voice, I'm sick as a dog, and I don't know if I'm going to make it tomorrow, at which point it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and my heart sank realizing what was coming next. And he said, you know, I really want to be there. I really want to try. I really want to get better. I really want this thing to go away. But just in case it doesn't, Brian, could you preach and lead worship? And, oh, Michael will do Bible study and family Bible hour, Bible reading and prayer and and family Bible hour. And I I took a deep breath, sitting in the waiting area of the barbershop, and just said, you know, Lord, this is going to be a challenge, and this is going to be good, and this is going to be edifying and stretching, and, and uh, I think it's going to be beneficial because I don't have six weeks to prepare a sermon. So I only have six hours to prepare a sermon, so it's going to be a little different than what we've done in the past or how I've preached in the past. So maybe this will be better for you all. But we do need to be praying for Pastor Patrick. He is sick. He texted me again at about 8 o'clock last night and said, it is not going well. Things are not good. I am sick, and you're on. And at which point I said, okay. And I finished one more hour of just prep for this morning. And uh, we are going to be looking at Ephesians 2 and looking at God's sovereign grace this morning. Um, this is, I mean, there's, there's been a lot of background study in this for me in, in teaching uh, a Bible Institute class on soteriology back over at the Bridge Bible Institute. So what I did is I just literally opened up my lecture notes and I just began to read through things and just look at some of the passages that just talk about grace. And on Friday night, the ministry over at Faith Bible Church in Northridge has a a coffee house ministry. They call it Common Grounds. They asked me to speak. And so I, I only had 15 minutes and you guys know me. Um, 15 minutes is not enough time, but I did this, something similar to this at Common Grounds on Friday, so it was fresh in my mind as I was reading Patrick's text, and I just figured, you know what, why don't we just spend some time talking about grace, because we all need it. What comes to mind when you think about grace? Sometimes it's a person's name, um, If I remember right, I hope I remember right, it was the name of my grandmother, my mom's mom. And it's a beautiful name. Sometimes you think about elegance, right? That was very graceful or gracious. But what comes to mind when you think about God's grace? What exactly is that grace? Sometimes we put uh, maybe an acronym to the word grace. We call it God's riches at Christ's expense, right? Because they truly are God's riches. It is receiving something that we certainly do not deserve. It's a little bit different than mercy. It's a nuance, and there's a little bit of an overlap there. Mercy is not receiving something that we do deserve. Grace is the other side of that coin. In the sovereign plan of God, he bestows his sovereign grace on man in order to save some. In order to save some. This sovereign grace is the unmerited favor of God, and it is utterly undeserved. This is the actual going forth of divine love in the form of benefits to sinners who deserve nothing. We deserve absolutely nothing other than God's wrath. And yet it is unmerited also because the recipients are totally unworthy. We are unworthy sinners receiving an absolutely incredible gift. Usually in the realm of theology, grace will be divided into two or three categories. One of the categories is called um, 
uh, common grace. Okay, This is the grace that is the unmerited favor of God toward all men displayed in his general care of them. It's basically why God sends rain on the earth to nourish the earth. It's part of his common grace. Psalm 145, 145 verses 8 and 9 says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. That's common grace. There's also what we would call efficacious grace, or this might be known by some of you that love theology and just love Calvinism, maybe called irresistible grace or special grace. This is the work of the Spirit, which effectively moves men to believe in Christ the Savior. It's that kind of grace. This is the same kind of grace that we see poured out after Peter's sermon on Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, verse 17, Peter gives this incredible sermon. They recognize that he was not a learned man. He was a fisherman. And yet, verse 37 says, Now when they heard this, they heard the sermon... They, the people, all of the different people from all of the different nations and all the different languages, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, each of you, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is an outpouring of that grace, that drawing of Use the Holy Spirit drawing men to Christ. And there's an illustration of it right there in Acts chapter 2. And then lastly, there is also transforming or sustaining grace. This is that type of grace by which the believer is enabled to live the Christian life. I was reading a, a blog post not too long ago, and it, it was very simply titled, By the Grace of God. And that's all it was. And the the blog writer, the, the, the author of this post, just wanted to draw out the significance of that word. You know, only because of God's grace. You know, it's by the grace of God that I am who I am. It's by the grace of God that I am able to get up in the morning. It's by the grace of God that I'm able to treat patients at work and help them feel better. It's by the grace of God that I'm able to come home to an amazing family every single night. And we have to understand that it's all of that grace. It is a sustaining grace. It is a rich grace. And that is also part of God's sovereign grace. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, he says this, But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Here is Paul, probably the greatest apostle of the, the apostles, even saying that I needed God's grace the most. And it's by the grace of God that I am who I am. Also in 2 Corinthians, he writes to the Corinthian church again. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, he says this. He said to me, and you, you know this verse. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And that is God's sustaining grace. It is by the grace of God that we were able to get up and come together here at Christ Bible Church and gather together in fellowship and worship together this morning. Grace is neither earned by merit nor forfeited by demerit. And that is a great, great truth and a great promise to have. We can't lose God's grace. God's grace is incredibly gracious. The provision of sovereign grace is absolutely unfathomable, and especially in light of our background. If, if you are at Ephesians 2, today we're going to look at Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. And we're going to look at God's sovereign grace from this passage. And I want to just unpack two aspects of the unfathomable sovereign grace of God on sinners. I want to look at two, unpack two aspects of how God bestows upon sinners his unfathomable sovereign grace. The first one is the provision of sovereign grace is unfathomable in light of our background. 
So we're going to look at our background. And the second aspect that I want to look at is the provision of sovereign, that the provision of sovereign grace is unfathomable in the light of our blessings. So we're going to look at our background and our blessings. Number one, the provision of sovereign grace is unfathomable in the light of our background. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 with me, if you would. Starting in verse 1, Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Look at what Paul says here in verse 1. And you were dead. And you were dead. He's connecting this section to what came before, and he's saying emphatically, you are in an impossible predicament. You were dead. What can, and I love asking this question because the answers are wonderful, what can a dead man do? Nothing. He can rot in his grave. He creates such a stench that everybody knows he's dead. And that's what our hopeless and helpless condition was. We were dead. And it's at the front of the passage because it's emphatic. It is absolute. There is no doubt about it. No room for questioning. We were dead. And we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Paul is not using two terms here to talk about two different types of wrongdoing. He's simply trying to emphasize the breadth of our sinfulness. He uses the term trespass here. Basically, this word means to slip, to fall, to stumble, to deviate, to go the wrong direction. When we were dead, dead, we were basically going the wrong direction from God, right? We're not going towards God in our deadness. Well, he also talks about the word sins, trespasses and sins. Originally, this word carried the idea of missing the mark, and specifically with regards to archery, a bow and arrow, a hunter going out and missing the deer that he was shooting at with his arrow. He missed the mark. Later on, it came to mean missing or falling short of any goal or standard or purpose in more secular Greek. Ultimately, though, for us, In the Bible, and spiritually speaking, it means missing or falling short of God's standard of holiness and perfection. There was absolutely nothing that we were going to be able to do that was going to be able to approach or meet God's holy standard. We don't have a holy God. Whoa, whoa, what, what, wait, what? You just said that from the pulpit? Yeah. We have a God who is holy, holy, holy. That's what Isaiah 6 says. That's what Revelation 4 and 5 says. We have a God who is holy, holy, holy. It is emphatic. It is expansive. It is expressive. It is so unapproachable that we can't even begin to understand it. And for in our deadness, in our deadness, we were utterly Hopeless because we were utterly helpless. We had nothing. He goes on. He says, We were dead in our trespasses and sins, verse 2, in which you formerly walked. This is a very real statement of hope. Do you see what he says there? In which you formerly walked. You were dead, verse 1. You formerly walked, verse 2. Your deadness is not your current state, Ephesian church. Your deadness is not your current state, Christ Bible church. You're not dead. You're not walking the same way you used to walk. Your current course is different now. That should bring us some hope. Paul wants to encourage the Ephesian Christians and give them hope as they look back on their former way of life. So, How exactly then did the Ephesian Christians formerly walk? Well, we can go to some other places in Scripture to talk about that. Um, 
But look at what Paul says here. They formerly walked according to the course of this world. Think about what's going on today in the news in the United States. What are the big issues besides the Oscars tonight? How about same-sex marriage? How about homosexuality as perfectly legitimate and reasonable lifestyle and acceptable? How about that we should be able to practice and participate, and not only that, but celebrate that deviancy? Not only in society, but even in the church. Romans 1, Paul writes about this a little bit. Romans 1, verses 21 to 32. I know it's a longer passage, but it's so important to hear these words. Paul writes, even though they knew God, and we, we do as a nation know God, we are the most literate nation on the planet when it comes to having Bibles. I mean, how many Bibles do each of us have in our own possession right now? I've got two. I don't know about the rest of you, but I've got one in my truck. I've got a bunch in my house. I've got one probably in every room of the house. It's, we have so many Bibles. We know God. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Is our nation doing that today? No. They became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is to be blessed forever. Amen. And then he goes on to talk about how bad that debauchery was going to become. And then he says such things. Verse 32, he closes out this section. He says, And although they knew or they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but celebrate it. They also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That is the course of this world. The Ephesian church was dealing with almost exactly the same thing in their world. And some of them were involved in that. He also says in in Ephesians 2, according to the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? We all know who that is. That is a very real satanic influence. And there is a satanic influence involved. The Corinthian church battled this influence. Over and over and over, Paul had to deal with the Corinthian church. And in 1 Corinthians 6, he writes this. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified. You were declared not guilty in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. That is the grace of God being poured out on the Corinthian church. That's the same grace of God being poured out on the Ephesian church. That is the same grace that we experience today. How do we know that the Corinthian church was dealing with satanic influences like this? Jump backwards one chapter. In 1 Corinthians 5, 5, he says, I have decided to deliver this immoral man, this such a one that he's talking about in those first four verses. I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. There is a very real influence. We don't understand what's going on in the spirit realm. Paul in Ephesians 6 talks about the the, uh, armor that we need to put on, our spiritual battle. We need the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth. We need the shield of faith that extinguishes the darts or the arrows, the flaming darts of the evil one. We need the sword of the Spirit, and we need to shod our feet with the gospel. We need those things. Well, not only was it according to the course of this world and and according to the prince of the power of the air, but it was also according to the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. 
what is that? What is, what is Paul talking about there? What kind of spirit is now working in the sons of disobedience? It is from within the church. The greatest threat to the Christian church doesn't come from without. It doesn't come from radical Islam. It doesn't come from the cults or other world religions or the atheists or the evolutionists. It comes from within the church. It comes from those who want to proclaim things like Genesis 1 really isn't literal. You don't need to take it word for word. It's we have science now. And science tells us that there are eons of ages and that God used evolutionary processes in the created creation of the world. And what I say that's nonsense. God is God. God doesn't need evolution. And God created what we see. I loved meeting with Buddy. And uh, Buddy and I get to hang out together at times. And, and we talk about school. And we talk about things. And, and Buddy was in a, a meteorology class um, last week at Pierce. And his meteorology teacher told him from the beginning at a secular junior college that evolution is nonsense. And it was because of the amount of argon in the atmosphere. Is that correct, buddy? And we would have so much more argon in our atmosphere if we had an old earth or we had a millions or billions of years old atmosphere. And it's just not true. From within, we have men preaching from the pulpit that Genesis 1 to 11 is myth. It's just a bunch of stories. It's poetry gives us an idea of how things began, but we can't take it literally. I want, to, I want to just express to you, it is real. It is history. It is inerrant. It has no error in it. And it is true. God created everything that we see in six 24-hour periods of time rested and sat down on the seventh day to give us an example of what we ought to do. And this is our Sabbath rest. We have the privilege of worshiping together. Another very, very uh, sad exposition on the church today happened just this past week. I don't know if any of you, anybody want to admit to watching Oprah Winfrey? No, I wouldn't either. But... Oprah had Rob Bell on her show on the Oprah Winfrey Network. And we all know that Oprah is trying to take over the world and that her church is going to be the megachurch, the ultimate megachurch. She had former megachurch pastor Rob Bell on. And the title of this um, article from the Huffington Post yesterday, actually, is A Church That Doesn't Support Gay Marriage Is Irrelevant. Okay, I just want to read this very short. I want to read this to you. Rob Bell, the widely popular and controversial former megachurch pastor, his church was Mars Hill Church over in uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul region in Minnesota, is now convinced that a church, that if a church doesn't support same-sex marriage, it will continue to be even more irrelevant. Bell made the comments on an episode of Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul Sunday, where he appeared with his wife, Kristen, to talk about religion and spirituality. Quote, one of the oldest aches in the bones of humanity is loneliness, Bell said. Loneliness is not good for the world. Whoever you are, gay or straight, it is totally normal, natural, and healthy to want someone to go through life with. It's central to our humanity. We want someone to go on the journey with. Bell notes that Christianity is evolving and that many Christians have already opened their hearts to the idea that two people of the same sex would choose to journey together. In fact, he says, the church's acceptance of gay marriage is inevitable. I I can pretty much guarantee you that I plan to, this is going to be a hill that I will die on in this church. It will not happen here. And I hope that you all are prepared to die on that hill with me and with Pastor Patrick and potentially remember me when I'm in prison for my beliefs and for my faith and for preaching the Word of God. 
Listen to what the rest of this, what he says. I think culture is already there, and the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. Did you hear what he said about this? All of a sudden now, this is irrelevant. The word of God is irrelevant. How can that be? That's what's happening in our churches today. That's why men like John MacArthur and Mark Deaver and Legan Duncan and Steve Lawson and Al Mohler and Sinclair Ferguson and others are coming in a week to gather at Grace Community Church to talk about inerrancy and the threat to the church at the Shepherds Conference. He says, When you have in front of you flesh and blood people who are your brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and co-workers and neighbors and they love each other and just want to go through life, that makes more sense to me. He raised eyebrows in 2011 with his book Love Wins, which questioned the existence of hell. After the release of that book, John Piper tweeted, Goodbye, Rob Bell. Because Rob Bell has now left the realm of orthodoxy. He's now, I'm sorry, since then, he's slowly drifted away from his evangelical roots. He's now a spiritual advisor for Oprah Winfrey, appearing on the Rob Bell Show on Winfrey's own, O-W-N, Oprah Winfrey Network, television network. He delves into his new ideas about love in a book he co-wrote with his wife, The Zimzum of Love, A New Way of Understanding Marriage. You guys know where the word zimzum comes from? It's some ancient Hebrew manuscript from the Kabbalah somewhere. It's some Jewish mystical idea about marriage. Conservative Christian critics aren't happy with Bell's message. You think? Right? But that's what's happening in the church today. This is the type of people that Christians flock to. And this is what is now, according to the spirit that is now working in the sons, I mean, sorry, in the sons of disobedience. There is a son of disobedience right there. And God's wrath rests upon him. Then verse 3, Ephesians 2, verse 3. He says, among them we too all formerly lived. Here is where Paul makes the shift from you to us, from you to we. Not only you, but now he's including himself and all of those with him in prison in the same grouping. Look at what he says about the three ways in which they formerly walked. They formerly walked in three ways. Number one, they lived in the lusts of our flesh. What are the lusts of the flesh? You guys know. Galatians 5, right? Right before Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 6, we see the lust of the flesh in Galatians 5. Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Paul writes, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality. And when he's talking about immorality there, he's talking about all forms of sexual immorality. Not just one kind, but all forms. He says, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I have warned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul even said, I used to do this. I used to be a part of this. Not only did he live in the lust of the flesh, he indulged in the desires of the flesh. We've already read that passage in 1 Corinthians 6. We lived in the lust of the flesh. We indulged in our desires of the flesh. And we also indulged in the desires of the mind. Who else can you think of from the Bible who indulged the desires of the mind to the nth degree? Solomon, right? What happened to Solomon when he did that? Why don't we let him tell us himself? In the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, he writes in verse 13, he said, I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has 
given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I realized that this also is striving after wind. Because in much wisdom there is much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. That's what Paul was after also. Paul loved knowledge. He loved wisdom. He loved working his mind. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He studied under Gamaliel. He was an incredible man of the word in a legalistic sense. Solomon came to the end of himself and ultimately at the end of Ecclesiastes, I think, came to an amazing conclusion. He says the conclusion when all this has been heard is this. Fear God. Didn't we just hear that this morning from John Piper? Fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. You definitely want to fear God. Don't allow yourself to be taken captive by foolish philosophy. In our small group, Bible says we're studying the book of Colossians. Eventually, we're going to come to Colossians 2. And in Colossians 2, Paul writes this. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of man, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. The only thing that matters is Christ. The result of all of this, the result of all of this foolishness, is that now by nature we are by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Children of wrath, what happens to children of wrath? They are judged and found lacking, and ultimately found guilty. Paul develops an increasing crescendo of the pitiful state of man in these first three verses, so that he can exclaim from the top of his lungs God's miraculous intervention and his saving grace in the next seven. Look back at Ephesians 2, starting in verse, in, uh, in verse 4. While the provision of sovereign grace is unfathomable in the light of our background, which we just saw, number 2 now, the provision of sovereign grace is unfathomable in the light of our blessings. The provision of sovereign grace is unfathomable in the light of our blessings. And this is the second point. This is the one I want to spend a little bit more time on here, unpacking all of these verses. Look at what he says here. But God. If you write in your Bibles, you need to circle that. Put a square around it. Highlight it. Underline it. Put an asterisk by it. Do something to make you, whenever you draw your, your page open to this page, your eye is drawn to those two words. But God. Two incredibly important words in this passage. Emphatically bringing to the front the source of our change of state. It wasn't me becoming a better you, or you becoming a better me, or me becoming a better me, or you becoming a better you, or having your best Friday last weekend. I don't know. Whatever all those self-help books are that are out there. This was all God. God is the source of our change of state. And it draws the attention to God's unwarranted love. He has no reason to love us. He loves us in spite of us. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. We sang several songs this morning talking about God's great love, his amazing love. There is an incredible, I think, lack of understanding of the greatness of God's love because we just take it for granted. We just take it for granted so much that just, you know, John 3.16, God loves, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And it's just such a nice verse. There's a new song on Air One now that, that I hear, and it talks about God's furious love. 
And I would have never thought to put those two words together to describe God's love towards us. His furious love. When when somebody's furious towards you, what does that draw in you? What kind of emotion does that bring to the surface? Kind of step back, whoa, scary. That's the kind of love that God had. It's a scary amount of love. And God... And Paul wants us to be aware of that kind of love because it is God, all God, not us, that brings this change. Verse 5, even when we were dead, again, he strategically reminds us of what he had just already told us. What has previously been graphically described, he wants to make sure, don't forget that. Don't forget that you were dead, but God. But God being rich in mercy, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. Even when we were dead. And then in verse 5, he he puts a parenthesis here. By grace you have been saved. He's connecting God's love and God's grace together here. He wants to focus in and aside on the remarkable action of God's grace, coinciding with God's love. Verses 5 and 6, he tells us that he made us alive. He raised us up. He seated us. Look at these verses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here in these two verses, Paul concisely summarizes the threefold vital union with Christ. And calls to mind three realities of salvation in these two verses. The first reality of salvation is that you must be regenerated. It is regeneration. You must be born again. You must be born again. He made us alive. Remember, we were dead. He wants us to remember we were dead and he made us alive. We weren't sick And we got ourselves better because we took our herbal tea and echinacea and emergency and whatever, Zycam. No, that's not how it works. We were dead. God made us alive. We were born anew. The second thing he wants us to to realize is that we are resurrected. We were being born from the dead. He raised us up. Verse 6, he raised us up with him, with Christ. And number three, we are exalted or exaltation. Resurrection, I'm sorry, regeneration, resurrection, and thirdly, exaltation. We are being born into heaven. And, but wait, we're still here. How, how is this that we're seated with him in the heavenly places. Isn't that a past tense verb? Seated with us? Well, in, in the Greek, there's this form of the verb called the aorist tense. And the aorist tense does something really cool. Is that it talks about action, point of action, in past time. And it's a great way to describe basically that this action has already been completed. God has already done all this. We're just waiting for the culmination of it. When either Christ comes to return us and call us home or we die and see him in glory. It's a done deal in God's mind. In God's economy, this has already occurred. We are regenerated, resurrected, and exalted in Christ. And it is an amazing truth to be aware of. And you ladies, I know, are studying 1 Peter, and I'm sure this this is a great passage. You may have already memorized it. I love this passage. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, 
who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. That is an incredible promise to cling to that gives us the hope. We are regenerated, we are resurrected, and we are exalted. And why? Why does he do all of these things? Look at verse 7. Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, verse 7. So that, there's those connecting words that are so important in our Bible studies. So that, in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Here, Paul, is, here Paul cryptically unveils the eternal exhibition of this provision of divine grace. This is the purpose for the pouring out of divine sovereign grace. That God would glorify himself. That God would glorify himself. That's all that God wants. God is jealous for his own glory. God will not give his glory with another. He will not share it with anyone. First commandment, right? Thou shalt have no other gods besides me. God is going to glorify himself in that grace because we don't deserve it. We are utterly hopeless, utterly helpless, but God. And in that, he glorifies himself. And then we come to these two so famous, incredibly famous verses that they're so familiar to us that it's almost sometimes I think we just skim by it. Oh yeah, I've memorized these verses. I memorized these in Awana. I got it. I got it. I got my... I got my uh, sticker in my Awana book for memorizing this, so I, I remember this. I don't need to read this again. Listen to these words. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. This, These two verses, this passage right here, clearly magnifies theocentricity and diffuses anthropocentricity. It clearly magnifies God and humbles man. Fancy theological words. Had to throw a couple in there for you. Magnifies God and humbles man. It elevates God to his right status. It exalts him to his proper place. It places all the glory where it belongs, which is right on God. And at the same time, humbles humanity and shows how they ought to truly and rightly view themselves. If God, in his divine foreknowledge, looked through the tunnel of time and saw that Brian would choose me, therefore I'm going to choose him, is grace grace? No. It's no longer a gift. It's no longer amazing. There's nothing supernatural about it. Because God is only reacting to something that he saw me do. And that's ridiculous. That's why we can't say that we were just sick, looking, seeking, searching for God. And that he found us and then decided to help us along a little bit. No, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And that's what makes grace so amazing by making us alive. And why were we made alive? Verse 10. Back to Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. 
there is an inextricable linking of initial salvation with subsequent conduct. You can't continue on in sin and call yourself a Christian. There is no such thing as a gay Christian. They are absolutely opposed to each other. You cannot identify yourself in your sinful state and call yourself a Christian at the same time. It cannot happen. If you are identified in Christ as his workmanship, your sins are stripped away and you cannot continue to identify yourself in the old man because you are a new creature in Christ. You are a Christian. And we've read passages where Paul's already talked, and so were some of you, and you participated in these acts of darkness, in these sins, in these unfathomable things that, that just were ugly and disgusting. Such were some of you. So, well, what do we do then? How do we walk in these good works? Paul gives us nine different ways of walking in, in good works in five passages in Ephesians. I just want you to write down the passages. Don't write down all nine things because you can see them in there. The first one we see is in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to persevere in the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we have humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance, diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He doesn't stop there. Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. Paul says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practices of every kind of impurity with greediness. So walk no longer as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. The next one we find in Ephesians 5.1. Therefore... 5, 1 and 2, sorry. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. The next one, Ephesians 5, 8 through 10. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. So walk as children of light. How? In goodness and righteousness and truth. And lastly, in Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16, he says, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. We are living in evil days here in the United States of America. And we need to make the most of our time and we need to walk wisely. Shrewd as vipers, gentle as doves. Walk as wise, not as unwise. So the provision of sovereign grace is unfathomable in the light of our background and our blessings. If we were to search God's word a little more, we would see that this is just one way of describing God's sovereign grace. Just a quick search shows me that there's at least six ways that we can see how God works in his sovereign grace. Let me just give these to you. We're not going to turn to all these passages, but I'll just give them to you. The first way is that it is an attitude of God toward man. An attitude of God toward man. And this is what we saw here in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 7. An attitude of God towards man. Another way it's described in Scripture is that it is a work of God on behalf of men. We see that in Titus 2, 11. 
a work of God on behalf of man. Number three, it is a gift of God bestowed on man. A gift of God bestowed on man. You see that again in Ephesians 4, 7. Number four, a power of God working in man. A power of God working in man. We read that earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. Number five, a method of God in saving man. A method of God in saving man. We see that in Romans 3.24. And lastly, number six, a realm of God into which men enter by faith. A realm of God into which men enter by faith. Romans 5.2. We are saved by grace. We are justified by grace. We are elected by grace. And we believe through grace. It is all of grace, all of which was according to his own purpose and grace for his glory and our good. Amen? Father, we thank you so much for this morning that you gave us to enjoy a time in your word and a time of worshiping you through singing and just talking about how amazing your grace truly is. We know that your grace drew us to you. Your grace forgave us. Your grace is transforming us into Christ-likeness. And ultimately, we know that that same grace will complete us and bring all of those works to completion. You have promised us that. And we know ultimately that grace will take us home. It's all by grace not by works, so no one can boast. Lord, we thank you so much for your saving, sovereign grace. We thank you so much for shedding your son's blood on that cross to pour out your grace in our lives. How incredible your love is towards us. We can't even fathom it, but Lord, We ask that you would help us to remember that love, to remember how amazing it is, to remember how awesome it is, to remember how fierce it is, how furious it is, and also, Lord, how deep. We thank you again for this morning, and as we prepare to leave this place, we ask that you would be with us the rest of our Sunday and the rest of our Lord's Day, and that we could continue to focus on these things and focus on you and glorify you in our lives and live for you. We do lift up Pastor Patrick and ask that you would heal him, help him to feel better, and that he would be back with us next week, again, delivering your message from your infallible, inerrant, perfect word. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.